Proverbs 2 teaches us that if you will treasure God's word, you will enjoy a heart of wisdom, good friends, and protection from evil and destruction. How do you get wisdom? We said last week that fearing God would lead to protection from evil. It would lead to wisdom. But how more so does this work? And I think Proverbs 2 unfolds this for us. So recognizing that Proverbs 2 teaches us that if you will treasure God's word, you will enjoy a heart of wisdom, good friends, and protection from evil and destruction. Point number one, treasure sound counsel and gain a wise heart. The wisest of people will will struggle with some decisions, and it might take longer than what they would hope. and might even take longer than what you think seems reasonable. But they don't throw up their hands and say, oh, I just don't know what to do. They rest. Wise people rest in the truth, and they trust the Lord to give them wisdom, and they trust others to help them gain that wisdom. It's nothing short of puzzling to me when someone makes a significant life-altering decision with nearly literally no interest in seeking counsel from godly people, especially when they're surrounded by godly people. And then then they get hurt because they're not praised for their decision. And then they wonder why they enter into calamity. They didn't exercise God's provision for gaining wisdom. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. He's talking about God's word here, right? No, he's not. He's talking about that wisdom which comes from being saturated in God's word. He's talking about his commandments. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who also appeared to be the most foolish man who ever lived, knew enough, was wise enough to know that his commandments, that's what he's saying here. He's talking about his own commandments for his son. You might read this passage and might misapply it so as to say he's talking about God's word here. He's talking about his word. Now, it's, and I'll get to this in a moment, it's saturated in God's word. But it's the command to be a man who receives counsel, who longs for it. So foreign in our culture. It's not just foreign in an American culture. It's foreign in an anti-Roman Catholic evangelical culture that says this is about Jesus and me. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not about you and Jesus. That's utterly foreign to many people's ears today. But it's not about that. It never was about that in the Old or the New Testament. It's about the church of which you are one member if you are Remember, well, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, is displayed in a handful, really many, believers in the New Testament, and I've chosen some selectively here, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You know, the person who seems to have some interest in religious things, maybe even legitimately spiritual things, maybe even Christian things, maybe even God's word, but really isn't getting any kind of traction to where anyone would affirm increasing humility and maturity and effectiveness and reliability within the body. What's going on there? Well, it's not the Word of God that's the problem. In many cases, it's it's that he's not a believer. But what Paul is affirming here is not simply that the Word of God is doing its work in believers. It's doing its work in what believers? Look at it with me, if you have that open, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. And Solomon here, in giving counsel to his son, is not just, you know, pulling some Chinese proverbs. Let's say that. It's not fortune cookie stuff. It's not things that he 
learn just through experience in life, school of hard knocks, things that he's gleaned from God himself in his word. And Paul attests to the fact that in the Thessalonians, they are faithful. In Acts 17, 11, we read, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so there was a serious grappling with the word of God. You know, we print a study guide for you every two weeks for your family group. Please don't be that person who shows up and gives an answer when you haven't spent any time in it. Because everybody knows that really what you said didn't really have anything to do with the passage. You just kind of pulled something from the memory bank. It's a shallow, unhelpful response when you do that. Dig into the Word of God. We make it really easy for you. We make it really easy for you. And if you want more, if you want to go deeper, which you should as you grow in Christ, then look on our website at the resource guide, and you can see those tools that will help you to really grapple with the truth of God's Word. If you think that all you need is your Bible, You're completely wrong. Paul didn't think that. When Paul was about to die, he asked for the parchments and the books to be brought to him along with his cloak, his coat. He was cold, but he also needed study tools in order to better understand God's word. Now listen, if all you have is your Bible and you have no access to anything else and somehow within God's sovereignty, you you ended up in a situation like that, which I think is probably never ever going to happen in most people's lives, then praise God you have a Bible. Because that is what you need. You need the Bible, but you need to understand the Bible. And all these people who say, well, there's so many different interpretations, so many different translations, and therefore you can never really get to any right conclusions. Those are the folks who really have no idea what they're talking about. But they're also the ones who will interpret the Bible however they want to. They're guilty of what they're accusing others of. You need sound interpretation of God's word, and this is what Paul spoke of, that the Thessalonians received not only the word of God, they received the sound proclamation of it. There's a vast difference between the sound proclamation of truth and that which is not sound, that which kind of trifles with the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God. The word here is inspired. It's translated as inspired. Uh, But more literally, it is breathed out. It's God-breathed. It's from him. That's the point. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That there is a careful delivery, a careful effort to rightly divide the word of God and that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. You know, when I I hear that uh, someone has uh, gotten a seminary degree and it's focused on programs. Um, my heart breaks because I think, wow, you just wasted a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time and a whole lot of energy because you learned programs. You can, you can learn programs on the Internet, but to learn sound exegesis so that you're really rightly dividing the Word of God is something that few seminaries are really committed to anymore. But it's really critical in order that those who would receive the Word of God would know that it is the Word of God because it's exhibiting power in their lives. They're being taught well, and the result is that they're growing, they're becoming more like Christ. The proverb goes on to say, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. You see what's happening there? It's more than a simple effort to receive someone's counsel, even one's father. But as Solomon says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, he doesn't just leave it there. He goes on and says, making your ear attentive to wisdom. So you're looking for wisdom. You know, the one proverb says, uh, here's the beginning of wisdom. Get wisdom. Seems not helpful, but the proverb goes on to explain more about how to get wisdom. It starts with subjecting yourself to someone who is wise, maybe a handful of people who are 
wise, making your ear attentive to wisdom, and inclining your heart to understanding. And then he says this, he makes it really clear, verse 3, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. So you're, you're asking for it. You're praying. You're asking God to give you wisdom. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see, this is a circular practice. The person who wants Wisdom should fear the Lord, and the person who fears the Lord will have wisdom. But seeking wisdom means that you will grow in your fear of the Lord if you're legitimately seeking wisdom. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Scripture commands us not to believe that we are wise. Don't presume that you are wise, but seek wisdom. Seek after it like silver, like hidden treasure. I read story recently of a warship that had been found and a billionaire you know had the money to seek after this warship he knew the general area and he knew that the result of finding it would be massive massive reward and so you know he didn't just go out and say i'm gonna look i don't know in the ocean but he had some idea where the ship was and so he used his money, he used his resources, he used technology to find it, and he, and he pursued and he persevered, and he eventually found it, and it paid off. But he had some idea where it was, but he knew that it had value. And this is the mindset of the person who really digs deeply for wisdom. He wants God's word to be the source of his wisdom. He knows that it is powerful, and he pursues it as with a hidden treasure. The text doesn't say that the Word of God is hidden treasure. It's not hidden. It's clear. It's unambiguous. But it must be pursued as if it is a hidden treasure. Our hearts, our minds cloud it such that it is hidden on a practical basis. But in terms of what God has delivered to us, it's not hidden at all. Verse 6 says... Actually, verse 5 says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. How does he watch over the way of the saints? By providing sound counsel through godly people. And the person who rejects the sound counsel of godly people will find himself in utter self-pity when he doesn't get the affirmation for making decisions without sound counsel. How could you possibly affirm someone who's making significant decisions in his life when that person hasn't included you in the process? Why would you expect someone to affirm your decision-making when you're not including them? to rejoice with you. The one who enjoys understanding righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. Verse 10, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Now don't twist this text to say that wisdom is going to come into your heart because you're really faithful at reading your Bible. and You're really faithful at you know, doing some online program that you found. The point here is that when you receive sound counsel from sound believers, then wisdom will come into your heart. I mentioned last week that I didn't have this as a kid. I didn't have it at all. Really not until I was 18, 17, 18 years old, I first went to college. But eventually God provided for me some really wise men to whom I could go, not simply for the sake of making good decisions. That's not what the issue is. The issue is that you are becoming a person who is wise. You don't want to be the person who's always leaning on others to make your decisions for you. You want to be wise yourself, being subject to other wise people. Wisdom will come into your heart if you will treasure sound counsel. You have no excuse for exercising a lack of wisdom. If you're plainly disinterested in God's word, it's no wonder that you're not wise. 
That's no secret, right? You just needed to hear this again so that you would run headlong into God's word and receive it and obey it and apply it. But what if, what if this? What if this is the situation? What if on the one hand there is this genuine, passionate pursuit of that which you believe to be what God has required of you and you still show no real signs of wisdom? No one's really affirming you as a wise person, but there's this genuine, uh, even passion on your part, toward the things that you think God would have you do. If you're running a race with full steam and serious consistency, but you can't seem to develop a rhythm of real, notable discernment, you are your own worst enemy in one sense. And yet you think, I don't get it because I'm doing all these things. You're still not exhibiting real wisdom as attested by other wise people, even though you're running a very genuine spiritual race. In other words, you're very sincere about your religious pursuits, but you have no real wisdom traction, no track record of knowledge and discernment. Something's wrong. As sincere as you have been, the object of your passionate pursuits has missed the mark of that which brings God's wisdom. And let me be very clear about what it is. You are not genuinely seeking wisdom from wise people. You're probably trying to do it on your own. And on occasion, you might, you know, grab a smattering of input from others, but it is not your laser-focused pursuit in life to subject yourself to legitimately wise people. That's the problem. You got some internet thing going on, you know, or some Bible study plan that you're, you're doing, and, and yet you've got no wisdom traction in your life. Well, point number two, treasure sound counsel and avoid man's wickedness. This segues right into that, the idea of being the person who has no wisdom um, because he's not really seeking wisdom via God's plan. Point number two, treasure sound counsel and avoid man's wickedness. So this is really the promise. Discretion, verse 11 says, will watch over you, understanding will guard you. Don't you want that? Don't you want the protection that comes from having discretion, the ability to express wisdom because you are, in fact, growing in wisdom? You don't any longer run headlong into foolish decisions and being subject to the wickedness of man. You're guarded. Understanding will guard you. Verse 12, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil, and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. You see, discretion, legitimate wisdom, will protect you from that. You, know, you wonder, I don't know why I'm so you know, affected by ungodly people, unrighteous people, just having their way in my life, influencing me one way or the other. You haven't exercised discretion. A lack of wisdom, but you deem yourself to be wise. See, this is often the conundrum for the person who thinks he's you know, pursuing the right practices. He's kind of diligent about it. He might even work on it for hours at a time. He's forsaken the legitimate pathway unto wisdom. See, the Word of God is pure, and it protects you from the impure. It is good, and it protects you from that which is evil. It's righteous, and it protects you from that which is unrighteous. But if you attempt to integrate the pure, righteous Word of God with impure, unrighteous, man-made philosophies, don't be surprised when you diminish its power in your life and hamstring its effects. The integration of psychology with Christianity 
was Satan's greatest tool in the 80s. And it's still having a massive residual effect. You know, those who embrace Larry Crabb and James Dobson and Minerthen Meyer and Cloud and Townsend, Gary Chapman, the love languages, all this nonsense. Why is it nonsense? Because they've taken truth and they've not only diluted it, they've polluted it with ungodly, worldly, pseudo-wisdom. You know, I don't want to see a show of hands of how many of you at one point in your life were affected by the five love languages. That's absolute nonsense. You say, no, 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 I've read it. It's true. I didn't say it wasn't true. (laughs) I know it's true. And I know this. You might say, but it works. I know it works. But it's ungodly. It's manipulation. It's hateful. It's not love. It's doing that which someone else wants so that you can get what you want. And if you've gone down that road, you know that it ended in disaster. You may still not want to acknowledge that that's where it ended. There is one love language in the Bible, and it's humility. It's a greater interest in others than an interest in self. It's a willingness to deny self, to be a person whose life emulates the person of Christ. Back to Acts 17 for a moment. The Bereans, you remember the Bereans, the Jews whose conduct in the pursuit of the word of God was more noble than that of the eager Thessalonians who received the word of God as the word of God, not as the word of men. Listen to verse 13 in Acts 17. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Silas and Timothy played their role as the educated young pastors under Paul's tutelage under his leadership when uh, those stepped in to agitate and stir up the crowds to throw a, a massive blanket of confusion upon truth Silas and Timothy were there to protect the flock you see the same in Acts 20 where Paul is departing and he calls all the elders in Ephesus together and he calls them to be prepared for wolves listen don't forget for even five minutes of your life that there are wolves who would far rather deceive and destroy you than they would enjoy their own righteous pleasure. That's what they do. It's like the person who sits and creates a computer virus. That virus didn't get on your computer by accident. Someone who hated you sent you an email, and you say, well, they didn't even know me. Right, they hate everybody. So they send the virus out wherever it goes and just trust that, you know, in a shotgun effect, it's going to have some impact, and it does. You know, you opened the zip file when you knew you shouldn't. The next thing you know, you're experiencing the, the trouble of those who wanted you to be confused. John says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world Already, there will be an Antichrist, but there is a spirit of Antichrist which has always existed. And the spirit of Antichrist is one of confusion. And that confusion is often not only stirred up, but nurtured in the heart of the person that thinks that Christianity is about Jesus and him. So he doesn't seek counsel. He's not interested in treasuring sound counsel, and therefore he doesn't avoid man's wickedness. He gets all caught up in it, and he has no idea. And so he thinks that psychology is somehow helpful to Christianity. And his life proves, because he has no devotion to righteousness, that it was an absolute disastrous pursuit, but he didn't see it along the way because he was deceived. Nobody apparently took the time to show him that he was going down that path. 
This is where our love for one another really ought to show itself. A willingness to call attention to those obvious pursuits. Now listen, don't, please don't be the person, okay? You're with me for a moment? If you're using social media, please don't be the person that unfriends everyone who questions your pursuits. You've got it out there. You're the one making the comments. And yet somehow you think it's off limits for anybody to address it. No, <laughs> you're, you're really inviting people to assess you. So when someone says, hey, I noticed on Facebook, say, please tell me more. Because it's, it's the real you. As many downsides as there are with social media, one thing that it has done is shown a whole lot of people who a whole lot of people really are. And not only in what they say, but in their absolute unwillingness to receive any kind of assessment for what they've said. Praise God for technology because it does have its place. But for Christ's sake, and I mean that literally, and for your sake, and for the sake uh, of the body, and especially for the sake of our body, you know, if you're a member of the Anchor Bible Church, just know that you do represent the Anchor Bible Church. Yeah, I think you know this. People think what they think about the Anchor Bible Church based on what they think about you. Therefore, be certain, not for my sake so much, but really for the Lord's sake and for the sake of your church, that you're very careful about what you say, but you're also very even, I would say even more willing, not just very willing, but more willing to receive reproof, correction, for the strong likelihood that at times you're going to show your involvement in man's wickedness as a result of the fact that you didn't treasure sound counsel. Just know that's the path. That is the certain cause and effect reality. If you're not willing to receive sound counsel, you know, don't waste somebody's time by continuing to go back when you refuse to do what they ask. It wouldn't be a waste of time if you go back and say, you know what, you asked us to do this, and I just didn't see any good in it. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I know we need help, so we're going to do it. That would be far better than just saying, you know what, forget it. It didn't help. I tried it once. Receive sound counsel from the person who's himself or herself growing in wisdom. That's what we have. That's what we have. You don't have R.C. Sproul in your living room. Praise God for R.C. Sproul, for other godly, truly effective teachers that have, in a sense, changed the world through technology, through their teaching. But you have a church. You have a local church. You have believers. You have what the Bible calls neighbors. Some of those neighbors are believers. Some of them are unbelievers. But your church is that body with whom you learn to Embrace and grow in wisdom and exercise wisdom. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Why do I mention names? Why do I want you to be aware of Joel Osteen? Because he is a wolf and I am commanded to expose him to you. He, listen, if you don't know this, you need to really, really look closely. Joel Osteen never, ever proclaims the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Never. Same with Joyce Meyer and same with Beth Moore. And you might not like that I mention those names, but I do that because of this command. Look closely at what they say, and you will find that there is not only an absence of the gospel, it's all about self-esteem, every ounce of it. Point number three, treasure sound counsel and avoid adulterous destruction. Verse 16 says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back 
nor do they regain the paths of life. I'm going to read to you Proverbs 5, and I just want you to listen. Because I want you to see Proverbs 5 as a commentary on what we're looking at right now, and then we're going to come back to the actual text we're looking at. But in Proverbs 5, you see a commentary on how this works, or you might say how it doesn't work. Proverbs 5, my son, again, Solomon's still speaking to his son with the loving hope of a father. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. So much benefit in receiving the sound counsel of a wise man. Verse 3, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. You get that? She's very, very effectively alluring because she works at it. I received a friend request last night from some woman, as far as I know, who I've never met. I don't know if it's a woman or not. You see this picture of a woman. I'm not trying to be critical of whether or not she was a woman. I'm simply saying, I don't know, right? Anybody could have posted that picture. It could be a man. But the comment was something like, I'm looking for friends, and I want to be seduced. So my immediate response is to not only decline the friend request, but to mark it as spam so that other men will be protected. That's all I can do. I can't do anything else. But I can at least do that. So if there are Facebook administrators that are looking for things like this, that they'll at least have some insight into it. But I'm going to do whatever is necessary to prevent myself from being affected by that. I was in a situation recently uh, with a number of men, and as a woman walked by, it was beyond my ability to ignore the fact that many men locked eyes on this woman and watched her walk the whole way. And I wouldn't say this was by any means a seduction-laced environment. It's quite the opposite. And so if a woman who, and I know this woman, uh, has no intention of alluring men, I know that about her, uh, and these men who I know to be good men, um, who are not desirous of committing adultery, uh, are so enticed to stare at her for a good five to eight seconds, how much more should we be willing to give our attention to the fact that the adulteress has speech that drips with honey? It's no accident when adultery happens. A man allowed himself to be seduced or a woman allowed herself to be seduced. Verse 4 in Proverbs 5, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Bitter uh, to the taste, just a repulsive overtaking of one's being. Everything that one experiences in the moment after adultery has taken place is this, this embittered feeling that overcomes one, but there's more to it than that. It's like a two-edged sword. It feels good, but it's awful. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Set up parameters. Men, set the parameters. Make no provision. In fact, destroy the provisions. Anything that might lead you down the path of adultery, destroy it, whatever it takes, no matter what it is, no matter what you lose, so that you don't lose your wife, but so that you don't lose your soul. Nothing that's worth it. Nothing. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. You know, whatever age you are, you know, look forward 30, 40, 50 years from now, looking back, potentially saying, oh, how I hated 
discipline. I despised reproof. Verse 13, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. You are that man that everyone looks at and say, you know, he knew better. But he quietly and privately and deceptively and clandestinely did whatever it took to maintain his foot in the world. He played the game, but ultimately the congregation knows. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. You know, guys, listen. Don't be the guy who says, you know, I'm not going to engage in this conduct. I'm not going to gawk at women, um, you know, when someone might be influenced by it. You know, like there's a younger man who might see me do that and he might be influenced by it. Do this. Be the man who says, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. And he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Do you know this experience? You engaged in sin that disabled you. It entangled you. It imprisoned you. Why? Because you didn't listen to sound counsel. This doesn't only apply to sexual matters. It it applies to all areas of life. You become entangled in the sin of pride or anger or embitteredness or dishonesty Distrust, rejection of sound counsel, that's in in and of itself. Verse 23 says, He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. So back to our text, verse 16, Proverbs 2. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress. How? How are you delivered from the adulteress? Through sound counsel. You become a man who is in the regular practice of receiving sound counsel. She forgets the covenant of her God. See, many times this woman is a woman who has some religious affinity. She even has some religious practices. That's certainly the context here. But she chooses to reject that. She was probably a legalist, probably engaging in her Uh, in a belief that her own conduct somehow pleased God, but she forgets her covenant with her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. Now listen to this. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So which is it? Will you be delivered from her, or are there none who come back? Which is it? Proverbs 6. Verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. It is not wrong when a man's adultery has been discovered, or a woman's, to say to that person, you have no sense, because that is the spiritual reality. It's not an insult. It's a matter of truth. He needs to know that. He needs to know that his adultery is the result of his lack of sense, his senselessness. He abandoned sense. I don't use the word common sense. Let's just call it sense. If it were common, everyone would have it, right? That's the idea behind common sense. Not everyone has it. There are certainly those who don't have it, and therefore they commit adultery. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So there is this tangible, what we might call pragmatic reality that the stain of adultery never goes away. Never. And yet, there is the redemption of God's grace. 
you may be delivered from the forbidden woman. And the permeating reality of the New Testament is that in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You may be brought back from the forbidden woman. You may be delivered from the forbidden woman. It's far more troubling to me when a man has had the appearance of some measure of spiritual maturity, such as he's in a position of leadership, when he goes right back to the ministry after having been exposed. That's a far more troubling reality than the guy who lived a lengthy life of adultery. God actually saves him, changes him, and he never looks back on that. But it's important to remember that when God does that in a man, he is now an infant, and he needs godly counsel. But let me just tell you something. Men, especially you, if you are not the man who is passionate about receiving godly counsel from godly men, you will never be the man from whom that man is interested in receiving help. You can't help the man who needs to grow spiritually if you yourself are not interested in receiving counsel. And guys, the practice that every single one of you in our church should be in is that while you regularly seek counsel, you're growing in your ability to minister to the brand new believer who's got a life of adultery behind him. That's who we must be, that the righteousness of God would be known in us. Point number four, treasure sound counsel and gain good friends. Gain good friends. I mean, when I say good friends, I mean, you know me. I really mean good, and I really mean friends. I don't mean, you know, the guy who's just as good a bowler as you are, and therefore you kind of get along at the bowling alley or whatever. Nothing wrong with bowling. My point is to say, you know, I, mean, I really mean good, and I really mean friends. Verse 20, so you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. What is this? This is... Uh, this is another effect of the cause, the cause being a person who embraces, really cherishes sound counsel. So what's the result? The result is that he will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. You wonder why you don't have vibrant Christian friendships. It could be that your focus has been misguided, that you've been off the rails of legitimate spiritual sanctification. You've been doing something maybe on the internet because it's so easy. You do it in the privacy of your own home. You're not really growing, but you're reading lots of theology, but you're not engaging in the practice of seeking sound counsel from sound men, wise counsel from wise men. And so you can't say that you're walking in the way of the good and keeping the paths of the righteous, and so you are influenced by nearly everything that comes across your path throughout the day. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you are, in fact, treasuring sound counsel, you are gaining legitimately good friends. You can count on the upright inheriting heaven and spending eternity with you if you treasure God's word. But there is a temporal, earthly reality to this as well. Those who allow the word of God to dwell richly in them are those whom God blesses. The man who looks to God for this wisdom, as our text this morning has shown us, is where it's actually from. It's the wisdom that comes from God, that God loves to dole out 
wisdom to those who treasure sound counsel. Verse 6, if you remember from our proverb, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. It's for those who seek wisdom from those who have God's wisdom. But this is not done alone. It's done in the context of good friends. There's a collective enjoyment of that blessing because it is not an individual-focused promise. Walking in the way of the good and in the path of the righteous is to do so in step with them. Neither your earthly reward nor your eternal reward will be enjoyed alone. God has predestined a people for this. 1 Peter 1, verse 1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. See, it's a collection of people. It's a dispersion of people. It's a group of aliens, people in an ungodly culture living with a godly passion together. Together. 1 Peter 1.3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, plural, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see this work out in the life of David via his friend, Nathan. David's sin wasn't just about David. Really ultimately separated him from the Lord and eliminated any ability on his part to have any significant or spiritual influence on the people of Israel. And as you know, Nathan confronted David. You are the man, he said. He called attention to all of his sin. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. See, that's the love of the faithful friend. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. If you will pursue sound counsel from godly men, from godly women, then God will give you godly friends. You will gain good friends. But don't be surprised when the person who is disinterested in pursuing sound counsel but devoted to activity in the church is himself not growing nor ever really willing to help you grow by in humility confronting your sin with love. Beware of the person who speaks in catchphrases but never really directs you to sound teaching, never really directs you to the truth of Scripture. He speaks in worldly proverbs, platitudes, things that are catchy. Beware that person. He might even say, trust the Lord. If he doesn't direct you to the truth of Scripture with godly, wise counsel, then he may well be a distraction. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When you get to Matthew 18, you really see an embodiment of this. In Matthew 18, there's the call for believers to address the sin of presumable believers, right? The idea is that there is a call to that person to be restored. 
And if he's restored, you rejoice. And if he's not restored, you go back with one or two more. And ultimately, you tell the church if he chooses not to be restored. And then, even more ultimately, you treat him as an unbeliever, as a tax gatherer. doesn't mean you don't love him. But you don't want the world to be confused about what it means to be a believer, and you shouldn't want the church to be confused about what it means to be a believer. But all of that takes place in the context of people who love truth and are giving and receiving sound counsel. I hope that this proverb will serve as a foundation for your thinking about your own life and really kind of a textbook for you to assess your own life to see whether or not you yourself are protected from evil and engaging in sound, godly friendships. Verse 22, the final verse in our passage says this, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. In our context, in the New Testament church, that takes place through church discipline. The loving willingness to address sin for God's glory, for the unity of the body, for the restoration of the wayward believer, and for the salvation of the false convert. That's what this ought to lead us to. But we can't experience that without a regular and consistent effort to understand and embrace and explain what it means for one's sins to be atoned. That God's wrath is satisfied in the person of Christ for all those who legitimately repent of their sins, turn from their sins, and turn to Christ. For Christ having achieved all that is necessary for God's pleasure, that we would rest in him, that we would walk in him, that we would be conformed to his image, that we, as we will see from John, we must decrease and he must increase. Father, thank you for the rich powerfulness of your word. We ask that you'd use it truly effectively, that we'd be humbled, that we'd really be assaulted by it. But at the same time, with at least equal significance, we would rejoice in it. Not left in shame, not left in sin, not left in the debilitating reality that we will be subject to the wickedness of man if we don't seek sound counsel, Lord, but that there is recovery, legitimate, biblical, spirit-filled, Christ-honoring, church-serving, evangelistically effective recovery. The men in our church would be delivered from the forbidden woman, not ultimately be proven to be a false convert who goes down to the depths of Sheol and never returns. Lord, we thank you for Christ. I pray that you'd help us even now to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other as Scripture commands us and that we might be an aroma of Christ unto you as we do that. And it's in his name we pray, amen.